Let's open up the Bible now to John chapter 3, and we'll be picking it up in verse 22. But if you are new with us, welcome. Here at this church, we love and value the Bible, and we most often just teach through books of the Bible, paragraph at a time. It's a type of teaching called expositional teaching, and we just seek to explain what's there, and by the Holy Spirit and God's grace, apply it to our lives. So we're working our way through the Gospel of John, somewhat of a photo album of the life and ministry of Jesus, and it was given to the earliest audience and to us for the purpose of showing the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done, and strengthening our faith, and also holding out the person and work of Jesus to those who might not yet have put their faith in Christ. So we've been helped as we're working through this book, and today we're going to pick it up with the next snapshot, if you will. And it's a passage that is somewhat similar to a text we had back in chapter 1. Uh, we're talking about John the Baptist, not to be confused with John, the author of this gospel, but a man that Jesus said was the greatest man that ever lived, apart from himself, of course. And so when we think about this man and what he had to offer Christianity then and now, it's so helpful to us. They're very practical principles that we can learn from his life and his teaching and his ministry. But also, he shines the spotlight on Jesus in such a unique and profound way. And the way I want to organize our material tonight, really, it, it kind of comes down to one question and four points. The question would be something like this. That when someone around you succeeds, will you choose jealousy or Jesus? And the four points we'll see as we go. Let's look at verse 22. After this, so this is sometime after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that Aaron told us about last week. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And John had not yet been put in prison. So to summarize what's going on here, John is out doing his baptism, which as we discussed before was somewhat of a preparatory rite. It was a baptism of repentance, so to speak. It does not have a modern parallel like any of the baptisms that would be practiced today. It was something that was in preparation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And apparently Jesus' Jesus' disciples were also baptizing as well. Though John 4.2 tells us that Jesus himself was not directly involved. <coughs> and then at verse 25, in the midst of that, a discussion, which all of us married people know is a synonym for argument, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, <coughs> to be clear, we aren't told exactly what is meant by purification, some commentators think that it's about the baptism. Others think that it's about the purification rites that it would have been uh, in play at this time. In either case, <coughs> the real issue was verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with, us, or with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going out to him. So you can almost visualize this. <coughs> this frustration. John's star had been on the rise. 
He had many, many people coming out to him, many people wanting to hear him preach, so on and so forth. He has a group of followers. In the midst of all that, the followers see <coughs> all that Jesus had done, and now there's a big crowd, and all the crowd is going to Jesus instead of to John. And in the midst of that, they come to him and they say, hey, John, listen, I think your plan has backfired here. You wanted to shine the spotlight on Christ, but let's be honest. <coughs> if you don't do something here, we're going to lose our audience. All the people that you amassed, they're going to go to him, and they're going to leave us, and they're going to leave you. So in modern vernacular, <coughs> they were probably thinking that John needed to fire off some <coughs> hot takes or some mean tweets or something and get himself back on track. <coughs> but instead, look at John's response. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. <coughs> Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in the midst of this, <coughs> you can almost hear a pin drop, can't you? They're expecting pitchforks, and they're expecting scorched earth, and John essentially says, nope, that's Jesus. We're good. Shows us a lot about his heart. <coughs> and in all seriousness, it shows us the three things that I think we can learn from him. First is a principle. Second is a picture. <coughs> and third is a perspective. It's a principle. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Another way to say it, if something happens that is good, if God gives a gift, it is God who has given it. This is like a proverb or a mantra <coughs> or a maxim that applies in so many given situations. And he's highlighting that <coughs> he has indeed been given this ministry. And what's happening undergirding this is certainly the sovereignty of God, isn't it? You think about this. Every good thing that happens in life happens because God has willed it to be. It's a gift from God, and we need to trust God with the results. <coughs> That's how John could tolerate being outstripped by another because he knew that God did not make mistakes. That truth set him free to trust in what God was doing in the life of Jesus. Martin Luther, when commenting on this idea, said this. He said, God created the world out of nothing. And when I realize that I am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me as well. Now, you think about this, <coughs> also in the ministry of Philippians 1, in Paul, he's in jail, and he says this, as other people are preaching, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, <coughs> not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But yet Paul knew he was preaching the gospel from pure motives. So somehow he experienced the same kind of freedom that John the Baptist experienced. <coughs> Surely it was a work 
of grace in both of their lives. And while we would all agree with this, most likely, <coughs> this is what you might call good preaching, easy preaching, but hard living. Because what are we most often prey to and fall victim to? That of comparison. We see the gifts of God bestowed on someone else. We see the ministry that God has given someone else. And what do we naturally do? Naturally, we become jealous. We want what they have. The big house, the fine car, the perceivably perfect marriage, even though we know that's false. The look of the quiet and yet immaculate suburban lifestyle. All these things <coughs> we can be tempted to covet. We can be tempted to compare ourselves to them and find ourselves lacking. But here's the thing about comparison. Comparison is a game that everyone loses. Comparison is a game that everyone loses because when we take our eyes off of Jesus and put our eyes on someone else and whatever God has given them, we have all kinds of spiritual problems. Number one, when we take our eyes off Jesus, you know trouble is going to ensue. But number two, then we can become resentful toward God, resentful toward others. We cannot have the appropriate level of contentment that we need for what God has given us and what God is doing in our lives. And there is this cancerous decay spiritually that comes from comparing ourselves to other people. We also begin to believe things that are just patently false. We look at these people that have what we might want, and we say, oh, well, they don't have any problems. Look at me. I've got all these problems. Do you think those people with those gifts don't have problems? Friends, they do. They just might have a few less, or they might be better at hiding the ones they have. But anytime we take our eyes off of Christ, we covet the ministry, the work, the gifts, the talent of others, we find ourselves playing this losing game of comparison. But let me also say this. That's really just the sin on the outside, isn't it? That envy, that jealousy, what's beneath that? Well, I think there's, at the core, a lack of trust in God. That's exactly what John didn't have. He could say, let them go to Jesus. I don't care if they come to us because they knew, John knew, they were in the same business. He was sent with the purpose of shining the spotlight on Jesus and pointing at him. And he said, hey, listen, these people were never mine in the first place. This was never my crowd. It's been God's crowd from the beginning. I played my part. He had them here for a while. But then when he revealed himself, well, of course they're going to go over there. Why would I try to keep them here? I have played my part. Let him play his. That kind of non-comparing thinking, knowing his role, staying in his lane, being thankful for what God had, revealed that he trusted in the sovereign God to work out his plan according to his will and good pleasure. Now, when we do the opposite, which all of us do, in addition to falling down on trusting God, it also reveals to us a lack of belief in the goodness of God shown to us in the gospel 
in that moment? Let's unpack this. In that moment, typically what happens is we are looking to those gifts, that success, that bottom line, whatever it is, somehow to be a functional identity for us. Spreadsheets are helpful to grow your business, but they are terrible saviors. A big church might make you feel great, but at the end of the day, it is God that grows his church. And we don't need to look for our identity in anything external. We need to firmly build our lives and our self-image, if you want to think of it that way, on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Any other foundation is sinking sand. It will fail us. So you might say, Dustin, you're laying heavy on bad news. Boy, I am. It's not even done. So if we're envious and jealous, we're not trusting in the sovereignty of God, we got a gospel problem because our identity is not in the right place, how bad can it get? Well, if we had time and more words, we could really get to the bottom of it. But I think we've got enough to go on. And here's what I want to say to you with that. How do we get out of this hole? It's just like what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Friend, the answer is Christ. It's Christ. And so when we think about kind of excavating our sin, we need to be careful in how we do that. We need to get enough information to get a handle on it. But we don't need to spend too much time focusing on it because guess what? God did not call us to be masters of intelligence about our sin. He called us to faith and repentance in Jesus. We don't need to be experts in sin diagnosis. We need to be experts in Christ's exaltation. And so we need to hear it. We need to see it enough to repent of it, to really get down to the roots of it. But then we need to apply the word of God and the gospel of God so that we walk in this example that John has given us. So what would it look like in this regard? Well, some of it would be like this, really taking to heart what he says here. That if someone else is having success in a legitimate way, and obviously this comes with a caveat, if they are stealing things and calling it God's blessing, well, we get it, no but if something good is happening over there and God is blessing it, then if they're preaching the gospel in a church standpoint, we need to rejoice in that. In the work standpoint, we need to be content, we need to be thankful, we need to pursue excellence, but at the end of the day, we got to do what we do and we got to trust God with the results. That is faith actively in the sovereignty of God, just like John the Baptist had. We do what we do with the grace of God, with the power of God, and we trust the results to God. Living in that way, acting in that way, is active faith in the sovereignty of God. Now, what about applying the gospel? Let me say what I said before in a more principial way. If we have a jealousy problem, if we have an envy problem, it is ultimately not a jealousy or envy problem, it is a gospel problem. It is a failure in that moment for the, the, the healing salve of the gospel to go all the way down to our broken heart. 
And in those moments when we are tempted to hitch our identity to these earthly things, that's where we take the good news of Jesus. And we remind ourselves that the truest thing about us is not whatever X, Y, Z that is. It's who we are in Christ. It's that we are loved by God, chosen by God, gifted by God, set free by God for the glory of God so that we might do what he has called us to do in this historical moment. There's a great verse in the Bible. It's talking about David. It says he fulfilled his purpose in his generation and then he died. Don't you want that said over your life at the end? He or she did what they were supposed to do, and then they were done. Just went on, moved on to glory. And so that was the kind of man that John the Baptist was. And we become those kinds of men and women by trusting in the sovereignty of God and by appropriating and listening and applying and going back to and cherishing and prizing the grace of God. And over time... Little bit by little bit, it changes our hearts. It changes our hearts because it reminds us again and again and again that what we're really looking for is not ministry success. It's not a big house. It's not a big car. It's not a big life. It's God. At the bottom, that's what we're looking for. And the grace of God reminds us of that truth. John knew it. We know it. May God give us the grace to live in it so that we might see what only he can do. So let me ask you this million-dollar question. Where does all of that land on you tonight? Specifically in your situation, where is the Holy Spirit pressing this truth into our hearts? I bet it's going to be a little bit different for all of us. For all of us, there's going to be a little bit of conviction, but also consolation. There's going to be a degree of, man, I'm off base on this, but oh goodness, Jesus is enough. He's enough. We get this principle, and the Lord works in that way, and we start to get it. So that's the first point. It's the longest of all of them. He moves next from the principle to the picture. Look back in your text. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. So he's speaking to his disciples there, and he said, hey, you, you've heard me say this. I've been going on about Jesus for a while. And what is it that I said? He said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So that's that whole way preparer, forerunner. I am doing what God said that I would do before I even came along. And then he says this, and I don't think this is any accident because of the imagery that comes up multiple times in the scriptures. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I like what one commentator has to say about this. He, he says this. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, the Shoshbin, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. 
He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He even brought the bride and the bridegroom together. But he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door in the dark when he heard the bridegroom's voice and he recognized him. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in. And he went away rejoicing because his task was completed. John knew who he was and what he was. He knew that he was not the main attraction. He did not have what my children like to call main character syndrome. He knew who the main character was. It was Jesus. And he said to his disciples that were surely inflamed at him, Hey, listen, I'm just the bridegroom. Uh, one of the, the guys that, that, that I've respected for a lot of years in ministry likes to describe himself like this. When he talks about what he does, and this is a guy that has had a massive global impact. He's like, I'm just a door holder. That's what I do. I just hold the door so God can come in. And friends, that kind of attitude, that kind of picture, is that how we see ourselves? Do we feel that in our bones? Because this is my guess. This is a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. Now, not all of us would like to admit it, but it's a struggle. Because everywhere you turn, you cannot get away from this. There is someone telling you that you've got to be the main character of your own story. Like, if you want to get published in any industry now, the whole thing, in many ways, is kind of built on you developing this platform and kind of becoming a little bit of a celebrity to your own tribe so that you can have something to say to these people. Now, on the one hand, I totally get that. I totally get it. There's nothing even inherently wrong with it. But that truth in the wrong hands? Think about that. And that's true in every type of publishing that there is. The same is true in music. That's what you got to do. You can't, it's not enough just to make great music. You got to make a tribe around your music that'll buy your stuff. It's the same thing in work. We all are inundated with this messaging at all times, pushing us toward main character syndrome. And here comes this guy that if anybody other than Jesus was qualified to be a main character, it was John the Baptist. And he says, I'm just the bridegroom helper guy. I'm just the guy that I'm going to make sure everybody gets together and then I'm going to dip. I'm out. The Lord had a hold of this man. But let me say this. Even though he had a very particular and specific ministry, I don't want you to hear this and go, this is like super Christian Christianity. There's no way I could attain to that. This is regular Christianity through a very irregular man. But when you study Christianity, maybe not so much now, let's call it the last 2,000 years, this is how it looked. Men and women and boys and girls that were consumed not with 
the establishment of their own name, but the advancement of the name of Jesus. It was a whole lot of like friend of bridegroom kind of thinking. And part of me thinks that, and I can't, I'm just speculating on this, but what might be part of the problem with Christianity in the United States is main character syndrome thinking. Because if the central value in all of the world throughout all of history is the glory of God, and there are so many that are running around trying to convince everybody of their own significance, I could see how that could be a hindrance to revival and awakening and renewal in our land. And I'm not just talking about celebrity Christians here. I'm talking about all of us. Because it is very easy to look at some guy, particularly if we don't like their theology or some girl that we disagree with, and be like, oh, it's those people. Nope, nope, it's you people too. It's all of us. And when I look at this passage, my heart is convicted. And I look at this and I go, Lord, please help me see this principle in my life. Help me see this picture in my life. And then the last thing here, help me see this perspective in my life. Look at this. Simple phrase. It's kind of like the first one. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can you say that with me? He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this is not like some weirdness absorption into the great whatever where you don't matter and you're individual, none of that. The Eastern religions do actually teach something like that, that your goal is basically to be absorbed. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying very practically here is, I came, I did my thing, Jesus' star is on the rise, my star is on the decline, that's God's plan. That's what John is saying. And again, it's this attitude and it's this heart and it's this awareness that God had worked in him. And we have seen this throughout church history. Let me give you two examples here. There was a guy named William Carey. Some of you guys know who he is. If not, Google him. <laughs> you will be convicted and encouraged. And he said this. He says, when I am gone, don't talk about William, Curry, or, uh, William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. Again, that's another one of those. It's easy preaching, hard living. But he's right. That's John the Baptist thinking. <coughs> There's also this story. There's a great preacher named F.B. Meyer. He ministered in London at the same time as Charles Spurgeon, who, as you know, is the prince of preachers. He was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle at this time. And this F.B. Meyer, he was on the scene, dynamic and gifted as well. But here's what he would do. The churches weren't far from each other. And he would go out onto the steps. And he would watch all the carriages flow by, passing his church to Spurgeon's church. Now, I'll just give you some humble advice here. Do you want a recipe for discouragement? I mean, how dumb do you have to be? I mean, you know they're already over there, but you're going to go watch, bro. Come on. 
But that's not where the story ends. Near the end of his life, he was preaching in Northfield at the invitation of D.L. Moody, who I talk about sometimes. And there was also a man there named G. Campbell Morgan who was preaching at the same time as well. Great crowds would come to hear Morgan, but very small crowds would come to hear Meyer. The latter was not in his prime, but Morgan was in the full bloom of his preaching power. But listen to this. Meyer came back to his college one day very sad, and he began to pray. And later he was heard saying to the people, Have you heard Campbell Morgan preach? Did you hear that message this morning? My God is upon that man. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, it's possible. It's possible. And and, and we don't need anything other than hearing the word of God, responding to the word of God, repenting of our sins, and asking that the Lord would make this so in our lives. That's what we need. We don't need a magical incantation. We don't need any kind of special touch from anybody other than God. And friends, it is my prayer that the Lord would so get a hold of us through this passage so that it wouldn't just be something we say, but it would be how that we live. That people could just sense the Lord is with us. That people would look at our church and they would go, something different is going on over there. And it's not because they got famous people and all this stuff. They, they just want to see God. They're serious about the Bible. They're serious about the repentance of sin and truly caring for one another and caring about the poor and just doing simple, basic Christianity like Christians have done for 2,000 years. And somehow in the midst of that, God smiles upon it and renewal happens among us. Humility is the hook on which God rests renewal. God brings awakening when the posture is like this. And we don't have to exalt ourselves and gin it up. We just humble ourselves and God descends. And let me give you one other last thing here from this passage. John's helped us in so many ways. But there's there's one other thing here. And in some ways, it's maybe the most important point of all. What John does here in 31 to 36 is he essentially gives them five pieces of evidence for why Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Look at it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all the things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains 
on him. So here, in essence, is what John is saying. He's saying first in verse 31 that Jesus had a heavenly origin. The virgin birth matters. The sinless life matters. Only God could pull that off. Jesus is divine in origin. Second, verse 32. Christ knew what was true by firsthand experience. I mean, you and I can see things and know things firsthand, but not the way that Jesus did. He had unique insight into everything because he was the Lord over everything. Next one. His testimony always agreed with God. That's verse 33. You never saw God out of sorts, out of joint, in conflict with himself. Jesus was always on the Father's page. They were synced up. Verse 34, Christ experienced the Holy Spirit in an unlimited manner. You see, that's what's being said there. He gives the Spirit without measure. That's how Jesus did his miracles. That's how he did what he did. And then finally, verse 35, Jesus was supreme because the Father had sovereignly granted that status to him. He did not earn the I fly a lot upgrade. He owns all the airlines. God gave him that designation. And so when you take all this together and you think about how to apply it to what we were talking about before, how we choose Jesus over jealousy when good things happen to other people, it's this. That if we really want to get the humility of John the Baptist, we focus on the greatness of Jesus. If we really want to get the humility of John the Baptist, we focus on the greatness of Jesus. Friends, this is important. Because back to what I said before, and I stand by it, unless I recant myself when I listen to it later. All the things about understanding sin, but understanding it just enough to repent of it and choose or, uh, and look to Jesus. This is where I'm going with that. The goal is not to be like John the Baptist. The goal is to be like Christ. The goal is not simply to be humble so that other people say, man, that girl, that guy, they are so humble. The goal is to be so eaten up with Jesus that pride and arrogance and jealousy, they don't even make sense. Because you know how great Jesus is. And when you know how great Jesus is, you're not really worried about being the main character. You know that role is already taken. You're not trying to usurp his place because you know he is worthy of the highest place. You know, Pascal talked about this. He said this. He said, we are so presumptuous that we would like to be known all over the world, even by people who will only come around when we are no more, such as our vanity that the good opinion of six or so, half a dozen other people, gives us pleasure and satisfaction. Oh, I wish that wasn't true, but it is. There's just something about us. It goes all the way to the core. Apart from Christ, we are rotten to the core. But I like what the, uh, the guys from the expository commentary say in response to that Pascal quote. They say one reason we are not humble 
is that we have not experienced greatness. We have not encountered majesty. So that in our ignorance and our lack of experience, we begin to think we are grander and greater than we really are. We begin to overestimate our own importance. John the Baptist, on the other hand, has experienced greatness and majesty and authority and incomparability with Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the bridegroom who comes from heaven. So how do we grow in humility? We experience the greatness of Jesus. No one has more authority. No one else has come down from heaven. No one else has received the spirit without measure. No one else is the word made flesh. No one else brings all of the Old Testament ritual fulfillment. No one else is the bridegroom. And no one else must increase other than Jesus. And let me tell you something. If we can lay hold of that, we will not walk in pride. We will not walk in jealousy. We will not walk in envy. Because what's that old hymn say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely, what? Dim. In light of his glory and his grace. Because when we get a picture of the greatness of and the glory, and the humility, and the worthiness of Jesus, and who he is, and what he's done, all this other stuff, it just kind of gets resized. We kind of get resized. And it's kind of ironic, because you would think somebody with a really high view of God, they'd just be walking around talking about how miserable they are. It's actually quite the contrary. If you get a really good picture of who God is, yeah, you're going to recognize then you're way worse of a sinner than you even thought. But guess what? Tim Keller is right. In addition to that, you are also far more loved and far more valued and far more prized in the eyes of your father than you could have ever imagined on your own. And then all these other things that we're concerned about and the co-workers and this kind of car and that kind of neighborhood, it just doesn't matter as much because you've seen true greatness you don't exalt yourself because you realize what the heck is the point look at him i mean sure maybe somebody can dunk but can you slam dunk the moon into the sun you cannot so when we get a picture of the greatness of jesus everything else kind of falls into place and so friends that is what i hope is happening for us through this passage. It's not really about John. It's about Jesus. Because that's what his gig was. To point us to the bridegroom. So let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head with me. And I just want to, I want to make some space for us to just sit in silence for a moment and just hear from the Lord. And then I want to lead us in a little time of prayer. And then eventually we're going to take communion. But friends, what is it that God is saying to you through this passage?
How is he convicting your sin? And also, how is he comforting your heart? How is he showing you where you might have exalted yourself, but showing you the exalted Christ, and now that just becomes irrelevant? Friends, let's confess our sins to the Lord so that we might be healed. Friends, let's praise the Lord for the greatness of who he is and what he's done in Jesus. Friends, let's spend just a moment and just let's just pray for our church. The Lord is clearly taking us into a new season here. He's given us a new location. He's given us renewal in so many different people's lives. Some new things springing up. Some we can see, some we can't see yet. But let's just pray for the work of God in our church. Let's pray for Mark Nestor. He's got his surgery this week. Let's pray for all those things that you heard about in your community group this week if you went to one. Let's pray that this particular text would just rest upon us and give us really good gospel fruit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would drive this down into our hearts and that you would use it to set us free. And Lord, we know the way this often works is there are times when you show up strongly like in this moment and then there's tomorrow and then there's Tuesday and then it's hard and we forget and things happen. But Lord, the same spirit that is with us now is going to be with us when the wheels come off on Thursday afternoon. And I pray that in that moment, as in this moment, you call us back to the same truth. And that we would be free. And that we would remember the grace of God in those moments. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this body. We are thankful. Most of all, for Jesus.
Because apart from Him, we have nothing. But in Him, we have everything. Lord, thank You for drawing us together today. In Jesus' name.